Hello, hello. Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. I am your librarian, Katrina. If you are new here, welcome. This is where I am reading through the enormous library books you don't see behind me because I am still traveling for work, so my books are not here. But after I read the book of the week, I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about it. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. It is the last Sunday of the month, so it is time for another president making this week's book of the week to rescue the Republic. Ulysses S. Grant, The Fragile Union and the Crisis of 1876 by Brett Bayer. And the accompanying cocktail is called President Grant's Highball, which is two ounces of bourbon, a half ounce of lime juice, one bar spoon of cherry preserves, ginger ale, and maraschino cherries to garnish. Although I don't have maraschino cherries, I wasn't going to buy a whole thing of maraschino cherries just for garnish, so there won't be a garnish on this one. Otherwise, let's do this. Ulysses S. Grant was born Hiram Ulysses Grant on April 27, 1822 in Point Pleasant, Ohio to Jesse Root Grant and Hannah Simpson Grant, and he was the firstborn of six children. His father was a tanner and an abolitionist, and that abolitionist belief was instilled in Grant and caused some problems for the family down the line when Grant married Julia Dent, who is a Southern belle from St. Louis, Missouri, born and raised in a slave-owning family. Well, this should be exactly two ounces, but we're gonna do this anyways, just to make sure. Oh, yeah, hey, look at that. Last week, not enough alcohol, this week too much. Put it all in there anyways, because it's only barely too much. So Grant spent his childhood more or less running around, like helping the family out on the family farm, such as it was, and learning about horses. He was a gifted horseman, like from a very young age, he was an outstanding rider. And he told his father early on he didn't want to be a tanner. He didn't like the smells that were associated with it. He didn't like having to... He just he didn't like it. I think, most, I think it was mostly the smells that were objectionable. If you've never been in a tanning shop when everything's first going on, yeah, it smells pretty bad because a lot of the process and uses, uses a lot of um, really harsh chemicals. And so the smell can be quite strong. A little more. So his father, once Hiram told him he didn't want to be a tanner, started looking around for another career path for his son and decided military would be the way to go. Now, the family wasn't strictly poor, but they weren't the wealthiest either. And so when he decided on a military career for his son, that the, the advantage of that is that the academy at West Point was completely free. However, the only way to get into the academy at West Point was at, at, through a recommendation of a sitting political critter. It could be congressman, senator, or whatever. So at this point, uh, Jess, uh, Jesse Grant reached over, reached out to his old friend, Congressman Thomas Hamer. Uh, the friendship had actually ended over political differences uh, because Hamer was a Democrat and Jesse Grant was a Whig. However, Jesse Grant patched up the friendship to ask a favor of a recommendation from Hamer for his son Hiram to attend the military academy at West Point. And Hamer did this gladly. Bar spoonful. That's a really imprecise measurement. So bar spoonful. This gets shaken. So. Hamer gladly agreed to this, writes the recommendation, and Grant is sent off to West Point. Now, when he arrives at West Point, he finds out that he has been enrolled under the name Ulysses S. Grant. Grant asked to have his name changed, but was told West Point could only admit the person by the name registered in his nomination. So from that point on, he became Ulysses. The S 
is believed to be for his mother's maiden name Simpson. So Hamer probably thought his name was Ulysses Simpson Grant. This is not a very big highball glass. There's not gonna be a whole lot of room for the ginger ale in here. See, I'll, I'll show you guys. Not a whole lot of room for ginger ale, but we're gonna top it off with the ginger ale. Grant was well-liked at West Point, bit of a troublemaker, um, garnishing multiple demerits in his time there. Ultimately, he ranked 147th in the school for good behavior. I don't know out of how many. Um, also in his class was William Tecumseh Sherman, who was also a bit of a troublemaker, ranked at 124th for good behavior. Now, his graduating class only had 39, and Grant was ranked 21st in that class. So he was kind of middle of the pack actually academic-wise. As Sherman would later report, quote, a more unpromising boy never entered the military academy. Let this be a lesson to all of us. Looks are deceiving, end quote. Now following West Point, that's good, because I like a good highball. Following West Point, Grant was assigned to Jefferson Barracks in St. Louis, Missouri, which he found to be kind of a lonely place. His family was all still back in Ohio, Illinois area, and while he was waiting for his permanent assignment, his West Point roommate, Frederick Dent, who was from St. Louis, invited Grant to visit the family at their plantation. And here is where Grant, uh, Grant met Julia Dent and quickly became enamored of her. Eventually, he won her affection and promised to marry when he returned from fighting in the Mexican-American War. Now, he did quite well in Mexico. I, I believe when I did the Polk review, I said basically the Mexican-American War was a who's who of who's going to be doing the fighting and the leading in the Civil War. Well, Grant was there, Sherman was there, and Grant did quite well. He saw some combat and he learned some part of the administrative side of the military. And when the war was over, he rushed back to St. Louis to marry Julia and they were married on August 22nd, 1848. Now Grant's father refused to attend the wedding because the Dents were slave owners. Although he did meet Julia later and they got on quite well with Grant's family. Sure she did. And Jesse and Hannah Grant were quite enamored of the four grandchildren that Ulysses and, and Julia eventually gave them. Now, Julia's father did not initially consent to the marriage because he did not think his spoiled daughter was suited to the life of a military wife, uh, which was partially correct. So she followed Grant to his early postings around the Great Lakes, but when he was assigned to positions in California and I believe it was Oregon, he refused to have her accompany him, uh, fearing for her health and safety on the cross-country trip. And then at the time it wasn't straight across the plains, you had to go, you take a boat down to the Isthmus of Panama and then overland across Panama because the canal hadn't been dug yet and then a boat back up, all of which was very dangerous and could be quite detrimental to your health. I feel like he may have caught something there, like malaria or something, but I might be misremembering. But anyways, when he made his trip west for his military postings in California and Oregon, he left Julia with her and their children with her family in St. Louis and then headed out on his own. This is where the rumors of his alcoholism kind of took hold, started and took hold. Um, he didn't tend to drink too much when he was with his family, but with the absence of his family, he took to drink quite a bit. Eventually, he was facing a court-martial for drunkenness. Well, I've had a little bit of a problem recording here and that my, my external camera, which is the better camera, uh, has disconnected itself from the system. And because my tech guy is in Nevada, probably still asleep because it's kind of early where I'm at, I'm going to have to keep this video going using my camera on the laptop, which is a shit camera. I'll just use the shit camera. Sorry, guys. It's going to look like hell from here on out. Oh, he was facing a court martial for drunkenness, and uh, which his friends thought he could beat, but he didn't. 
he probably could have, but <clears throat> he then would have had a court-martial on his record. Even if he beat it, it would have shown that he was court-martialed. So rather than have his official record staying with a court-martial, he opted to resign his commission and return to St. Louis in 1854. Now, at first he thought he would try his hand at farming and he set up a farmhouse on some land that had been gifted, gifted to him by his father-in-law. The reason for the air quotes is a few years later when Grant decided that the farming wasn't going to work out for him, his father-in-law sold the acreage but kept the money from the sale <laughs> because it was only it was a gifted for tenancy purposes basically hey go live there and improve the land but it wasn't grants to do with as he wanted what was grants to do with what what he wanted was the one slave that his father-in-law gifted him with and what grant wanted was to free the man because those abolitionist roots ran deep so he was he was very poor and he certainly could have used the money from the sale but he couldn't do it because he was a good man. He believed slavery was wrong because his, that's how his parents raised him, was that abolition was the way, slavery was evil, you can't own another human being, so he freed the slave. Um, he tried a couple of other small jobs in the area. I think he tried to be like a, a landlord collecting rents, but he was, frankly, he was a little bit too soft-hearted for that, believe it or not. You know, the guy would go on to become the greatest general of the Civil War, too soft-hearted to collect rent. Somebody was having a hard time. He'd be like, okay, no problem. Pay me next week. So he ended up moving with his family back to Galena, Illinois, where he worked in his father's shop part of the tannery. So he wasn't working with the, with the smells, the objectionable smells, doing the actual tanning. He was working in the sales floor, basically. And that's where he was living in 1861 when the Civil War started. Now, Grant quickly re-signed with the army and was put in charge of troops and Julia's wish at the time was that he might achieve the rank of major general isn't that cute and quaint um, she was thrilled even though technically she herself probably had southern loyalties because all of her family and friends were from the south she was a slave owning family she knew a lot of the confederates she was very proud of her husband and she was thrilled when he just kept kicking literal ass and eventually became the commander of all the union troops so she was immensely proud of him for that. And his family, Julia and the kids, as much as they were able, stayed nearby during the war, kind of living with him during the siege at Vicksburg and ultimately moving to DC once he was promoted to the general of the army. Uh, here is where his long association with William T. Sherman really became a saving grace of the nation. Early in the war, Sherman had had kind of a mini breakdown and the press kept calling him crazy. Grant advised him to ignore it. When Grant started finding such success on the battlefield and presidential favor with Lincoln, the press suddenly got wind of his past drunkenness and started questioning his suitability to lead. And Sherman was able to return the advice about ignoring it. And truly, it seems like the only time Grant experienced drunkenness was when he had a prolonged separation from his family. And basically he was depressed and bored drinking, which is never a good place to be in, but that's what he was doing. Speaking of. So Sherman reminded him that clearly the stories were just bitterness from haters. Grant wasn't a drunk and Grant had a job to do, so he should ignore them and get on with his, with his job. So Grant did, and he did it exceedingly well, with Sherman as essentially his right-hand man. And the two of them together devised the sweep of Grant sieging Richmond on one side, while Sherman swept in from the west, pushing Johnson's forces ahead of him to the Atlantic Ocean. And of course, all of this worked with Grant accepting Lee's surrender of the Army of Northern Virginia at Appomattox on April 9, 1865, which effectively ended the Civil War. 
And Grant was gracious in victory. I mean, he, he allowed the Southerners to keep their swords and their horses. Um, the swords was a symbolic thing because everybody was using guns then. But the horses was big. He could have easily taken them for the North, but he kind of looked at these these beaten, broken men and said, hey, if we're going to rebuild the nation, you're going to need your horses so you can get to, to farming and planting food and keeping your family fed. So he let them all keep their horses, and that won him huge esteem with the with the confederate army now in addition to the swords and the horses he agreed to feed the men who had basically been on starvation starvation rations for several months so he provided food for the like twenty five thousand troops who were suddenly once again american citizens and in desperate need of food and when his own troops wanted to cheer and fire salutes for the victory, he cautioned them not to. I mean, he advised that graciousness and victory was the order of the day because they were all, again, countrymen. And then he advised the exact same thing when Sherman accepted Johnson's surrender on April 26, 1865. And of course, by that time, Lincoln had been assassinated, Johnson was president, and Grant remained as commander of the army, which was a good thing because Johnson initially wanted to try, convict, and hang all of the former Confederate soldiers he could get his hands on. And Grant convinced him not to, based on the amnesty he had granted when accepting the surrender, which had been agreed to by then-President Lincoln. And as the surrender and amnesty was ultimately accepted by Congress and granted to Johnston's army, the South was kind of left to rebuild, which, at which point Johnson turned to this forgive everybody and destroy Reconstruction efforts in favor of ensuring white supremacy. So. Now, in the, the grand tradition of politicians in the 19th century, Grant did not actually seek the presidency. Uh, when he was nominated for the position in 1868, he accepted, and he won in an absolute landslide, garnishing 214 electoral votes to Horatio Seymour's 80. And with that, he began his first term as president. Now, the biggest problem with Grant's presidency is that he was too trusting. And he always chose to see the best in those who were nearest and dearest to him, and this led to several scandals throughout his terms, as those nearest and dearest were prone to taking advantage of him. He oversaw a ratification of the 15th Amendment and tried very hard to build positive relations with the Native American tribes. But that last one really fell short because Grant fell into the oh-so-American trap of assuming that a farmer's life was the best and wanting to push farming life on nomadic tribes. So that just doesn't go well, right? They're nomadic. They want to move. Now, among the scandals of his administration included Indian agents who took advantage of the tribes they were overseeing. Although he did have, I mean, he really was quite progressive for the time because the first person he, he appointed to the Bureau of Indian Affairs was an actual Native American, uh, which was shocking and didn't last long because racism. I mean, seriously, that was essentially it, that the white people in the cabinet didn't want to work with him and it just all went downhill from there. But he tried. I mean, he truly tried. I mean, he took people in for individuals. He took them as they were individually and, and treated them accordingly. Reconstruction, which had already been off to a rough start under Johnson's administration, became an increasingly tense situation as carpetbaggers moved south and took control of several states, most notably Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana. Uh, with the governors of South Carolina and Louisiana requesting federal troops to help maintain order in their state, which Grant was loath to do. He thought that's going to smack of imperialism and um, eventually voter fraud and uh, um, corruption, obviously. I mean, he believed federal intervention was not his place, but 
With the rise of the KKK, federal intervention became necessary and troops were eventually installed. Now, all of this occurred over the full eight years the Grant was in the White House because he handily won re-election in 1872 with another landslide of 286 electoral votes to Horace Greeley's 66. Now, perhaps most puzzling of Grant's entire presidency was the seeming enmity of U.S. Senator Charles Sumner. Now, Grant and Sumner shared many of the same goals, and they were ostensibly on the same side. They were both Republicans. But Sumner basically refused to work with Grant on any of Grant's plans for Reconstruction. I mean, he refused to back annexation of Santo Domingo and demanded more than reasonable reparations from Great Britain for their part in building Southern ships during the war. Now, to be fair, annexation of Santo Domingo was a pipe dream. Um, Lincoln had tried something very similar with Haiti. I feel like other presidents before had also tried with the idea, of course, being that they would colonize it and send free blacks there. I mean, basically, it was freedom through apartheid, which had been tried in the past, and it had failed. Uh, the freedmen basically held the opinion that, for better or worse, the U.S. was home, right? This is where they live. They didn't know anything about Haiti and then later Santo Domingo, so why should they relocate? Which is an absolutely fair point by any metric. Um, additionally, as Grant well knew, quite a few of those freedmen had fought for the Union and to maintain the Union, so why should they have to leave the Union? Excellent points. Grant eventually gave up the idea of Santo Domingo and ultimately won on the argument of reparations from Great Britain, because Sumner's wanted a billion dollars in Canada. <laughs> Give us Canada, we'll forgive you. Grant settled it for the much more reasonable rate of $15,500,000 in reparations. And, real money back then, and since it was all backed by gold, that was the you know, actual currency. But the biggest challenge of Grant's presidency came at the very end of his tenure in office, and I mean like the very bitter end. Um, in 1876, he decided not to run again. There was no bar to it legally, but the precedence for only two terms had been set by George Washington, so Grant kind of wanted to go with tradition and announced that he would not be running. This left the field open for Rutherford B. Hayes versus, who I was he Ohio? I think he was Ohio. Uh, versus New York Democrat Samuel Tilden. And this is where those states of South Carolina, Florida, Louisiana became vitally important as all three states returned multiple electoral responses, uh, including very clear forgeries. Plus there was one unclear elector from Oregon because they weren't sure if he was a valid elector. He was a member of the U.S. Postal Service and anyone working for the federal government is barred from being an elector. And it was later determined that the elector had resigned his USPS post before being voted elector, but that information did not come out until after everything had been well settled. So the problem how to settle the election was, it initially started with Grant's idea. He started by suggesting formation of an election commission made of five each from the House of Senate plus five each from the House, five each from the Senate, plus five Supreme Court justices, so 15 members total. Eight of those members were Republicans, seven were Democrats. The initial polling results came in at 184 votes for Tilden, which was just one shy of the 185 that was needed, and it was 165 for Hayes. So there were 20 electoral votes in contention. If all were granted to Hayes, he would win, but if even just Oregon went to Tilden, then Tilden would win. So basically what would happen is, is the <clears throat> Senate met to certify the results and as the roll call for electors was made, when one of the disputed states came up, the commission would discuss the submitted results and decide who to give the votes to. And one of the commissioners, I don't recall which one, was trying to decide how deep they had to dig into these allegations of fraud and of voter suspension. Did they need to actually see the physical ballots to see if they were fraudulent or not? 
I mean, each of the disputed southern states had U.S. military on standby, which is not without justification because Grant worried a misstep here would spark a second civil war, which the nation just wouldn't survive. I mean, it barely managed to survive the first one 11 years earlier. So you have all of this going on. They're trying to decide what's the best course to make, who do we give these votes to, how do we avoid a second civil war. And into this fraught historical moment steps one Edward A. Burke. Now, Burke is somebody I'd like to know more about. He was a former Confederate soldier, and he had a suggestion. He met with Grant one night in the White House. Burke was a mover and shaker of the Democratic Party, and he worked very much behind the scenes, and his sole interest was in ending Reconstruction in the South. See, the three Southern disputed states were also having disputes as to who were governors in those states. Um, the sitting governors were all carpetbagging Republicans. And the votes seem to indicate that de the Democratic candidates had won in each of those states. So Burke suggested that if Hayes would promise to end Reconstruction and back the election of the Democratic governors, then the Democrats in Congress will quit filibustering, giving Hayes the presidency. And this is ultimately what happened. So, I mean, there's a lot that's sus in there, right? Because, I, I mean, as close as it was, Tilden only needed one vote to win. He probably wouldn't have gotten Oregon, since that guy was found to be a, a, an elector and it was a Republican. So that he probably wouldn't have gotten to that. But he probably would have gotten Florida, like hands down. Florida, they're, they're, I think that's the one state that they were having issues, but not as bad as South Carolina and Louisiana. I think he probably had Florida. Bear hypothesizes that Tilden didn't want the presidency as much as Hayes did. And so he didn't fight for what was most likely rightfully his. And I think having read all, everything I've read to this point, right, all the presidents and the book on the Civil War, everything reading up to this, the truth is probably a little simpler. And it's a truth that Bayer even acknowledges in the book, although he didn't piece it together the way I did. And Tilden was a New York Democrat. He was a Democrat not so much because he believed the principles of the Democratic Party, but because he saw the political opportunity in a party that had been ravaged post-war. Uh, the political opportunity is what brought Republican South to take over governorship of states that Republicans would never have won pre-Civil War. I think it's most likely the Democrats in the South didn't trust Tilden and didn't believe he would actually end Reconstruction because he was a New Yorker. I think they took the opportunity to force a political bargain on a political opponent that would directly benefit them and lead to a century of Jim Crow laws. And now the reason all that makes sense to me is because Tilden had effectively won, all right? Any one vote, all he needed was one state to go to him. Hell, even just Oregon would have given him the vote, right? So if they genuinely trusted Tilden, why wouldn't they keep holding out for that? All right, he was there, man. It doesn't make, I mean, it makes no logical sense unless they just didn't trust him. And the bargain was struck literally just like, like days in time because Hayes was announced the victor on March 2nd, 1877, just two days before the required March 4th inauguration. 
I mean, it was so close that, that Johnson was like, hey, do you want to stay in the White House in these two days? And Hayes is like, nah, it's cool. I'll stay someplace else. We'll, we'll, we'll keep the formalities from here, if you please. Post-election, the Grants used their savings to go on a world tour, and Grant became a very capable public speaker. He was the general who just won the war, and he was a popular figure overseas. And he basically dined with the crowd heads of Europe. He, he dined with Queen Victoria. He dined with the prince in Germany, with the Russian czars. I think he even went to Japan, but I'm not gonna swear to that. Did I read that in there? He may have gone as far as Japan and, and dined with the royalty there, but when they returned, the Grants settled into a house in New York and gave a decent sum to their oldest son, Frederick, to invest, which Frederick did, making them millionaires. Unfortunately, Grants' need to trust those nearest and dearest to him was a trait that was inherited by his son, Frederick, who trusted his business partner. And the business partner ultimately lost the Grants everything, leaving them destitute. And about this time, a monthly publication approached Grant to write a series of articles about the Civil War and several of the key battles he had fought in during that conflict at a rate of $500 per article, which is approximately $14,000 in today's money. Now, this might seem like a lot of money, but when Grant's friend Mark Twain heard about it, he was outraged, believing that Grant had been grossly underpaid for his contribution. I like knowing it once he found out that subscriptions to the magazine had skyrocketed following the release of his first article. Now, Grant had agreed to write the articles, not so much because he believed he was a good writer, he didn't think he was and wasn't sure he could write the articles, um, but because around this time he was diagnosed with throat cancer and he knew he was dying. And he was very worried about how Julia was going to be supported in his death if they had no money left, right? I mean, he'd been bankrupted by this bad bargain made by his son's business partner, which he didn't blame Frederick for because, I mean, his kids loved him. He was a great father. He, I mean, truly, his, his kids were the light of his life and it was a very loving family environment. But Mark Twain looked at what he had written, talked to Grant, and Grant already had a contract with a publishing company, but it hadn't been signed. And Twain looked at the contract and said, no, this is garbage. You definitely shouldn't sign this. Sign with me. And they eventually reached an agreement on who would be paid what for the publication. Grant did manage to finish both volumes of his memoirs before passing away on July 23rd, 1885 in Wilton, New York. Kind of as a testament to the man himself, his funeral was attended by over one million people, <laughs> including soldiers who had fought on both sides of the conflict. And he was widely respected. He was liked as a man. He possessed this wry sense of humor and humility that made him popular with everybody. Um, his name was even brought up for election for the 1880 election that they were going to try and run him again. And like, it was funny because his second son, it might, it might have been his oldest, but it might have been his second son who showed up to like sit with him because he was worried that if his father didn't get the nomination, Grant would be devastated. Well, as the, you know, polling's going back and forth, Grant says something like, I fear I might be elected again, but he said it in such a tone of voice that his son knew that he really didn't want to be elected again. <laughs> so he's like, I'm going home, dad's fine, he's got this. His funeral was attended by over a million people and following the official publication of his book, Twain presented Julia with a check for $200,000, which is approximately $6,240,000 in today's money. So that plus residual royalties were enough to see Julia 
very comfortable until her own death on December 14, 1902. This book was really good. It was very engaging. I know there are an alarming number of people who will refuse to read it based on the author being a Fox News reporter, but he was quite apolitical in his writing. I mean, he reported on I mean, just the facts, man. The skullduggery that happened on both sides of the aisle during one of the nation's most difficult periods of political turmoil. Uh, Grant is one of the presidents I, I knew very little about when I started this journey, but I think I'm going to put him near the top of my list. I mean, like, third, maybe. Uh, the actual list is back home, um, so that might change. But I think third, because and he was a man of principle. He, he was humble. He, he, he got to where he was by, by being this very humble man and very genuine man. And that's something we definitely don't have in politics today which makes him somebody I really wish I could have met. He was a man of principle. And despite spending eight years in the White House, he never developed political cynicism. He always saw the best in people to the very bitter end. And what's not to love about that? So that's it for this week. If you liked what you saw, don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you guys later. Bye.